Here's a Throwback Thursday episode originally cast in March of 2021, where we're going to look at the question of whether adding a Z-hypnotic improves antidepressant response. And stay tuned to the very end, where I'm going to update it with new research. We all know that when you sleep better, you feel better. So it shouldn't come as a surprise that a sleep medicine like azopiclone helps depression and anxiety. But do they all help, or is it just azopiclone? And is it possible that this hypnotic has direct antidepressant and anxiolytic effects? Welcome to the Kylat Psychiatry Podcast, keeping psychiatry honest since 2003. I'm Chris Aiken, the Editor-in-Chief of the Carlat Psychiatry Report. And I'm Kelly Newsom, a psychiatric NP and a dedicated reader of every issue. Some men, no doubt, will, before sleep, consider one thought, I am alone. But some, in the mercy of God or booze, do not long stare at the dark ceiling. That's the last stanza of a poem by Robert Penn Warren, and it tells us something about what it's like to be depressed and unable to sleep. When the lights are down, the ceiling is dark. There is nothing to distract from the ruminative thoughts that make depression so painful. Last month, we covered the long and complicated relationship of benzodiazepines and depression that culminated in over a dozen controlled trials where the benzos, in particular Alprazolam, Xanax, did a pretty good job of relieving depression, even when compared head-to-head against a tricyclic antidepressant. Today, we're going to talk about the successor to the benzos, the Z-hypnotics, and whether they can augment antidepressants in depression and anxiety disorders. They are called the Z-hypnotics because all of them start with the letter Z. First came Zopaclone, Imavane, which is not available in the US, but has been used in Europe since 1986. Then Zolpidem, Ambien, released in 1992. After that, Zaloplon, Sonata, released in 1999. And then there's Ezopiclone, Lunesta, released in 2004 in the US. It's that last one we'll be focusing on today because it has the most studies in depression and anxiety. Ezopiclone is not widely available outside the US, but for our international audience, it's pretty similar to the original Z hypnotic, Zopiclone. Zopiclone is composed of two mirror image stereoisomers, the L and S Zopiclone isomers, and they're together in a 50 50 mixture. So that means the typical dose of Zopiclone, 7.5 milligrams, contains 3.25 or 50% milligrams of S Zopiclone, which is just about the same as the maximum dose we use in the US of 3 milligrams. So if you've ever prescribed Zopiclone, you've also given S-Zopiclone. We know of only one clinical study that compared these two clone hypnotics. It was a randomized trial that compared the two dosages of the drugs, the typical dosages 7.5 and 3 milligrams, in 199 patients. And it found that they were virtually identical in both their clinical and adverse effects, which included polysomnography data. However, there are also a few non-clinical studies in healthy volunteers of these two drugs, and those found that S-Zopiclone works faster, it comes on faster, and it doesn't linger as long, it comes off faster as well, 
compared to zopatlone, which would suggest that the S isomer is a little more favorable in its pharmacokinetics. You know, you really have to wonder, why would anyone fund a head-to-head study of two similar drugs that are both generic and not even available in the same country? This study was funded by Europharma, who recently launched Ezopiclone in Brazil. Brazil is the only country we know of here where both Ezopiclone and Zopiclone are available. The Europharma wanted to reassure Brazilian physicians that the new version was at least non-inferior. Now that we've clarified that these two drugs are pretty similar, let's look at the Zopiclones might differ from other Z-hypnotics. Although they all start with the letter Z, or SZ in the case of Ezopiclone, these medications have different chemical structures. They're different enough that each actually has its own structural class. Zolpidin, Ambien, is an imodazopyridine. Zalapon, Sonata, is a pyrozolopyrimidine. And the zopatlones are classified as cyclopyrrolones. But what do they do in the brain? All of these drugs act on GABA-A receptors, which is the same receptor that the benzodiazepines act on. But the benzos are used for sleep and anxiety, while the Z-hypnotics are only used for sleep. You'll often hear that the reason for this difference lies in a simple pharmacodynamic fact. The Z-hypnotics only affect the part of the GABA-A receptor that's involved in sleep, the alpha-1 subunit, while the benzos affect alpha-2, 3, and 5 subunits, which are involved in anxiety. But that's not quite the whole story. There's one Z-hypnotic that is not selective for alpha-1, and it spreads its activity out among the anxiolytic alpha-2, 3, and 5 subunits. And that one, you guessed it, is Zopatlone, as well as its American cousin, S-Zopatlone. Which means we might expect the Zopaclones to have more anxiolytic effects than the other Z-hypnotics, at least in theory. But let's look at what happens when we test it out in people and animals. When Zopaclone was first discovered, they tested it in mice to see if it affected them like the benzodiazepines do. And indeed it did. Mice on Zopaclone were less aggressive and anxious, much as they are on benzodiazepines. Most animal studies concluded that Zopaclone has a very similar behavioral profile to the benzos. The human studies came next. In 1989 and 1990, two small controlled trials came out comparing Zopaclone to some of the benzodiazepines that are often used for sleep. Those are triazolam and the European nitrazepam. In both studies, the Z-hypnotic and benzos had similar effects on sleep But the patients who took the Z-hypnotic consistently had less anxiety. Now that's a surprising finding, considering that it was compared to a benzodiazepine. But the same thing happened again when a Japanese group of researchers compared Zopatlone to the benzodiazepine midazolam for anxiety before surgery. Only Zopatlone reduced the preoperative anxiety. The benzodiazepine did not. So far, we have a few small studies with some early indicators that Zopaclone may reduce anxiety, much like the benzodiazepines do. But the bigger studies came later with the Zopaclone, and they were sponsored by its manufacturer, Cepricor. 
In 2006, Mauricio Fava and colleagues wanted to see if patients with depression got better when their sleep was treated. Intuitively, it makes sense. Insomnia is a risk factor for depression, and depression is associated with all sorts of sleep complaints. And yet, the idea had never been shown to work before, so this study I'm going to mention is a first of its kind. They recruited over 500 patients with depression to take part, and everyone was started on the antidepressant fluoxetine, Prozac. Half of the patients were also started on s at the same time, and the other half were given placebo at night. At the end of this eight-week study, those who got the Zopiclone were less depressed than the patients on placebo, and this difference even held up when they removed the sleep items from the depression rating scale. The sleep medicine, Azopiclone Lunesta, also brought about a faster antidepressant response. So was it something about Zopiclone, or was it just that anything that improves sleep will improve depression? After all, we've since learned that a behavior therapy for insomnia, CBTI, treats depression and augments antidepressants. And keep in mind, the patients in that study had insomnia and depression. So we don't know if Zopilcone treats depression in people who don't have sleep problems. The next study of Zopilcone came out in 2010, and it was led by Vaughn McCall, who also contributed to the FAVA study. We interviewed Vaughn on the podcast last year, where we talked about the psychology of insomnia. These patients are keyed up, he said, on edge, anxiously awaiting for sleep to come long staring at the dark ceiling, as Robert Penn Warren put it. Lack of sleep causes anxiety, and anxiety causes more lack of sleep. Vaughn understands this vicious cycle and wanted to see if Isopatlone would help not just depression, but also quality of life in depressed patients with insomnia. So he randomized 60 of them to either placebo or the hypnotic, again, augmenting a new trial of fluoxetine. And it worked. Quality of life no doubt improved, as did depression. So far, Azopiclone is two for two in depression, but there were two other industry-sponsored studies that did not get published. We were able to dig up the results of one of them, and it was negative, despite having a similar design to the others. Azopiclone helped sleep, but not depression. The final study was a smaller one in elderly patients with depression and insomnia, and we reached out to the lead investigator but did not hear back. But most therapies in psychiatry do have negative studies, including many of the ones we use, like the SSRIs. Studies fail for all sorts of reasons. The only other Z-hypnotic with similar studies in depression is Zolpidem Ambien. It has about the same number of studies as S-Zolpidem, including one that was done by Dr. Fava, but Zolpidem did not turn out as well. Generally, it helps sleep, but not depression. So that made us wonder, is there something unique about Zopatlone that gives it this antidepressant boost? That's what Andy Crystal came to believe. Dr. Crystal was one of the investigators in many of the studies we mentioned, and here's what he wrote about them. There is some evidence that the insomnia therapy Azopiclone may have direct antidepressant and anxiolytic effects. Azopiclone not only significantly improved sleep compared with placebo, but it also had a significant advantage 
over placebo on the associated depression and anxiety outcomes both with and without the sleep items included in the scales used. The initial interpretation of these findings was that azopiclone improved sleep compared with placebo and that the sleep improvement mediated improvement in depression and anxiety. However, there is evidence that this is not the case. The identical studies were repeated with the insomnia agent Zolpidem, modified release, and comparable improvement in sleep versus placebo was observed, but without an accompanying effect on depression or generalized anxiety symptoms. The most parsimonious explanation for this set of findings is that azopiclone has direct anxiolytic and antidepressant effects not mediated through effects on sleep, while Zolpidem does not. As Dr. Crystal describes there, azopiclone was also tested not just in depression, but also in a large trial for generalized anxiety disorder, and it worked, while its neighbor, Zolpidem Ambien, did not work in a similar study of generalized anxiety disorder and in other studies of depression. Now, this Zopatlone study in generalized anxiety was a very large one, 600 patients, and it compared Zopatlone to placebo as augmentation for escitalopram, Lexapro, in generalized anxiety disorder. Dr. Crystal was one of the authors. There are also small studies of Zopatlone in PTSD, one of which were reported on in the Carlat report last month. But there in PTSD, the results are not as strong, they're a bit mixed. And in 2014, Dr. Crystal published a controlled trial of esopiclone for lower back pain, along with Harry Goforth and Xavier Prudhomme. And it worked. The patients on esopiclone had less pain and less depression. The more their sleep improved, the more their pain went down, suggesting that the benefit was related to sleep rather than a direct effect of esopiclone. After that, Isopatlone went generic. So that's about all the research we have, and we can see that some loose ends have been left untied here. We'd like to see more studies to find out if Isopatlone indeed has direct antidepressant or anti-anxiety effects, as Dr. Crystal suggests. But we at least have enough research to suggest that it might. And it's worth keeping an eye out for this in your patients. But there's also data pointing the other way. Daniel Kripke analyzed the major trials of the Z-hypnotics in primary insomnia. He lumped all of the Z-hypnotics together, and he found that the patients were more likely to develop depression on the hypnotic than on the placebo. This was a secondary analysis, and the difference was small, 1% rate of depression on the placebo versus 2% on the Z-hypnotic, but it's still worth considering. After all, we saw the same paradox with benzodiazepine. Those medications can cause depression, particularly with long-term use, but they also treated depression in the short-term trials. Sound familiar? Sounds a bit like azopatlone. And if azopatlone acted just like a benzo in mice, why wouldn't it do the same in humans? It may not be that anything that improves sleep will also improve depression. That could be part of the mechanism here, but there could be some anxiety reduction going on that is helping esopiclone cut through the depression. And it may not even be esopiclone that's doing it. Esopiclone has an active metabolite 
desmethylzopiclone, which has anti-anxiety effects. And this metabolite seems to reduce anxiety without causing sedation. That's a good thing because it lingers around in the body with its 7 to 10 hour half-life. The company that made Esopoclone, Sepracor, put a patent on this metabolite 20 years ago, hoping to develop it for anxiety and possibly depression. Whatever research came out of those efforts, however, seems to have vanished without a trace. Active metabolites are fascinating business. So if what Kelly just said is true, that means that when you give Zopoclone or Esopoclone, Lunesta, the patient is getting some good night's sleep, But there's also this anti-anxiety molecule that's lingering 24-7 in their system as a kind of downstream effect of all that. So, a lot of speculation and open questions, but what's the take-home here? We hope you've learned that the Z-hypnotics are not interchangeable, and one of them, Zopatlone, acts more like the benzos at both the cellular and clinical level although it's not as likely to cause tolerance or addiction as the benzos are. But this is also a complicated subject, and one that's part of a larger history of attempts to treat depression with GABAergic medications, from barbiturates to benzos to zopatlone. Check out part one of this episode from April 5th to learn more on that. And while we're suggesting that zopatlone may treat depression through anxiolytic benzo-like effects, Not even that is clear. Among the benzos, it's arguably alprazolam that has the most specific antidepressant actions. And those effects may not be mediated by GABA. In part one of this podcast, we mentioned that alprazolam has a unique structure which resembles a tricyclic antidepressant structure. And one of our listeners sent in a comment that adds to that story. Alprazolam also affects serotonin 5-HT1A signaling much as vortioxetine, buspirone, and some of the atypical antipsychotics do. And thank you to Dr. Xavier Prudhomme, who sent in that comment. He's the same Dr. Prudhomme, by the way, who co-authored one of the S-Zopatlone and pain studies. We started this podcast with what looked like a coherent story that the gabagergic medications have long been used with some success to treat depression, and that the major advance from barbiturates to benzos to the Z-hypnotics was one of safety, not of efficacy. But we've run into a lot of unanswered questions along the way. Give us the take-home point, Dr. Aiken. If your patient has depression and needs a benzo, consider alprazolam. And if they have depression or generalized anxiety disorder or chronic pain, and need a hypnotic, consider one of the Zopatlones. And if you use these, try to keep it to the short term. All of the studies we've talked about were short term, and we've even uncovered some evidence that long-term use of these GABAergics might cause depression. Yes, and the researchers who discovered Zopatlone's augmentation effects also proved that you could successfully stop the hypnotic as recovery kicks in. In the depression study, they secretly replaced the hypnotic with a placebo after eight weeks in a randomized withdrawal phase, and the patients did just as well on the placebo in terms of sleep and depression, suggesting that short-term use is all that's needed. In the generalized anxiety study, however, they had a little more trouble coming off a zopaclone, which makes sense if you consider it has benzodiazepine effects. 
It's a little harder to do that sort of thing in practice where you can't replace your patient's sleep med with a placebo. And placebos do have a big effect on sleep. But you can set expectations from the start. Tell your patient that the sleep medicine is there to get them back on the road when their sleep is really off track and that they'll need to make some lifestyle changes to help stay on the road once their body is back in the habit of regular sleep. Then, taper off the hypnotic, lowering the dose and the quantity over a month or two. See our companion podcast for patients, the Pocket Psychiatrist podcast, where we did a recent episode on CBT insomnia called How to Sleep. And now, for the word of the day, present moment awareness. Present moment awareness is an element of mindfulness. It involves monitoring and attending to your current experience, rather than anticipating or worrying about the future or dwelling on the past. The idea is captured in the title of John Kabat-Zinn's 1994 bestseller, Wherever You Go, There You Are, or in a lot of cliches like, Be Here Now, and Seize the Day. In next week's podcast, we'll detail the treatments that work best after a patient fails two antidepressant trials. On that list, you'll see some unique medications, like minocycline, that few of us are using. But you'll also see psychotherapy, particularly mindfulness-based therapy, and psychoanalysis. That's right, psychoanalysis worked for treatment-resistant depression, and we got the manual here for the particular form of psychoanalysis, the Tavistock method. And I'm going to read it to you right now. Here's what it says the analyst provides to the patient. The analyst is receptive and open, makes emotional contact, and attends to the here and now. People with depression have a hard time being in the here and now. Their inner experience is often painful, and they are driven to avoid it. They are disconnected from the outer world as well. Psychologist James McCullough describes patients with chronic depression as though they are encased behind a wall of concrete. It's not easy to sit with that kind of pain or to reach behind those walls. The next time you see someone with depression, try to bring a dose of present moment awareness into the room. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter for daily research updates. Today we'll tweet on a new study from the New England Journal of Medicine that tested psilocybin in major depression. Earn your CMA credits at the CarlatReport.com. So what's new in the past three years since that podcast came out? We don't have much to report on the Z-hypnotics, but I, I do want to quelch a rumor about their alternative, the orexin antagonist. Seems there was this rumor for a long time that the orexin antagonist might help depression. So far, I have seen no studies showing that. Nothing's come out. And instead, all of these orexin antagonists, like suvorexant, limorexant, doritorexant, they all have warnings and a few case reports of worsened depression or suicidality on them. So we await further information to see if those might also help depression by treating sleep. We just don't know. But we do have a new study, which has changed my thinking about the risks of long-term benzodiazepines 
versus the risks of tapering them off. Now, there's been a movement to taper people off of benzodiazepines, particularly the elderly or those on opioids. And this new study compared real-world outcomes in those who were tapered off by their doctors versus those who were not in a huge sample, 350,000 patients. The researchers were expecting to see better health outcomes in those who were taken off the benzodiazepine, but what they found was the opposite. Mortality rates, including overdoses, were a little bit higher in those who were tapered off in this VA study. The study, although very large, was not randomized, so there's always the possibility that doctors were simply tapering off benzos in higher-risk patients to begin with, and outcomes do tend to be worse in higher-risk patients. Of course, they tried to control for all these confounders, but they can't do that completely. The authors did suspect that what might be going on is that as people were getting off the benzodiazepines, they started turning to alternative sources, the streets, to get similar medications, which then raised their overdose risk. A real good question about this study is, what about those patients on opioids? And fortunately, the authors did parse them out. And to our surprise, they found the same finding, that even in the group who were on opioids, the mortality risk was greater with tapering off the benzodiazepine versus staying on it. So this study gives me a little pause about taking people off benzodiazepines, or at least teaches me to respect that the benzodiazepine withdrawal state can be a very psychologically painful one with risks of its own. We saw similar findings, again, from VA studies mostly, with tapering off opioids, which seemed like a really well-intentioned effort by the VA, but in some of those studies, they found worse outcomes in those who were tapered off them, such as higher risks of suicide attempts and psychiatric hospitalizations. So we got to respect that withdrawal state for both of these medications. Thank you to Donovan Mouston colleagues from the University of Michigan Ann Arbor VA who brought us this wonderful new study in JAMA Network Open, December 2023. For more studies like this, follow me on the Daily Psych feed on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, or that new one threads, Chris Aiken, MD. The Carlat Report is one of few CME publications that depends entirely on subscribers. Thank you for helping us stay free of commercial support. 